You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. My name is Jamal. I am one of the pastors here. I get to serve as lead pastor. If it's a first-time guest, I say welcome. I'm so glad that you're here uh, tonight at six o'clock. And I believe that the Lord uh, has a word for you. So we're going to pray and we're going to dive right into um, explaining, illustrating, and applying to di- today's text. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as a people. I pray, Lord. Um, even right now, that you would just calm our hearts and allow us to focus on your word. I pray, Father God, that you would minister to um, each of us in a way that is particular to us through your spirit for such a time as this. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, this week is a big week as we are coming in on uh, the election week. And so there's a buzz, there's some anxiety, there's some fear, uh, there's some, some turmoil that is in the air. But there's also an eagerness on uh, many people's hearts and minds to be active this year. I read on Saturday that 91 million people uh, cast their early vote in, which is a record in the history of the United States. And most people, when you talk to them who have already voted, they have voted because they feel like this is an important election. No matter what political side or camp people are in, they feel like this election can set the course for the next 10 years or more for our country. And we know that on both sides, our political uh, philosophies that vary and that differ, and both political parties would say that they hold to their philosophies because they believe um, in what's best for America, what's best for this kingdom. And in today's text, We're going to see uh, that Jesus Christ is uh, going to continue to show us that he is king of uh, what we as Christians believe is an even better kingdom. And just like uh, political uh, parties and and political uh, uh, personalities, when they uh, want to win a political race, they come in and they use provocative language and they uh, put their best foot forward so that people will vote for them. In today's text, we're going to see that Jesus is going to make a, a, a huge statement um, with everything he does as he is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he is intentionally provoking the religious leaders of his day, because he has came preaching a message. And the message since early on in Matthew has been clear. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom is in your midst. And so as we think about this and as we think about today's text, we're going to see that Jesus is inviting us to submit to his kingship, but not just in word, but in deed. 
And those who truly follow Jesus, those who are truly a part of his kingdom, are those who have been transformed from the inside out to where their words and their confession matches their lifestyle. And I want to remind you, uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking from the subject of this, the incoming king. And ever since Matthew chapter 16, we see that Jesus has set his eye on Jerusalem to go back to the holy city where the temple is. And so for uh, the last several chapters, everything that Jesus has been doing or saying has been leading up to this moment. The book of Matthews records about three years of Jesus' life. From chapter 20 to chapter 28 is just seven of the 28 chapters in the book. And these seven chapters are all about the last week of Jesus' life. Because Jesus, in this last week, is uh, bringing into fruition his very purpose for being coming incarnate. He was born to die. And he died to rise so that we might have life. And so for the last two weeks, we looked at Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And we saw him declaring his kingship. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. He went as soon as he came into Jerusalem into uh, the temple, the most important um, uh, 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 place in all of Jerusalem. It was the place that symbolically represented the presence of God. And he went in healing the blind, the lame, and flipping over money tables. And as he's flipping over these tables, he is preaching from the Old Testament, uh, from Isaiah and Jeremiah, bringing judgment on the temple and those who run the temple because they care less about people and more about their political and social power and personal profit. And then we see that Jesus leaves the temple, goes out of Jerusalem to, Beth to Bethany with his disciples, and in the process, he curses a fig tree because the tree had leaves but no fruit. And in essence, what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus was like an Old Testament prophet, reclaiming the temple of God and also saying that Israel was like that fig tree, all show but no fruit. All show but no fruit. And judgment was upon them. And so now this is uh, the week that uh, the Jewish people would have called Passover. Uh, normally, Jerusalem is about 50,000 uh, people uh, inhabiting the city. And during Passover week, there would be 150,000. This to Jerusalem was what the Kentucky Derby is to Louisville. It is an important event. And once again, Jesus comes back in the city on Tuesday of what is called Passover week and what we as Christians call Holy Week. And he's there to make some significant statements. And so that's where we pick up in verse 23. We see that Jesus's authority is going to be questioned. And it's questioned by the chief priests and elders. And he is questioned while he's teaching. And this is important to see that Jesus not only uh, proved his, uh, his, his, his Godness, his, uh, his, his call to be the uh, Messiah uh, through miracles, but he also often proved this through teaching. Ever since the age of 12, he could be found 
in the temple teaching and people were marveling at his teaching. In fact, we read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, that uh, people, when they heard him preach, they would often walk away saying that he does not preach. He does not teach like the Pharisees and the scribe. He teaches with one with authority. And now the text says that the chief priests and the elders of Jesus' day ask him a question in front of a multitude of people who are all enamored at him. And the question is, by whose authority do you do this? By whose authority do you do this? The chief priests, they were the, uh, uh, the, the temple servants who um, had, had reached the highest spiritual pedigree. In fact, the only uh, spiritual person that was higher than chief priest in Israel's uh, hierarchy would have been the, the high priest. These were men who sat on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel. Uh, one of, they, they would have been one of a, a group of 70 people who ruled Israel. And the elders, the elders were non-priests who were uh, men of dignity, uh, men of deep thought, of philosophy, and who were chosen from their various tribes to represent them on the high court. And their question is, whose authority do you do this? Now, why are they asking Jesus, by whom, whose authority are you doing these things? Well, I believe it's for a couple of reasons. One is because Jesus did not fit in a spiritual uh, uh, a class, so to speak. He wasn't an ordained rabbi. He, he didn't uh, go through the schooling that they went through. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't a scribe. And yet he is commanding all of this attention uh, from the Jewish people and teaching in the temple as one who had authority. But second, I believe that they are hoping to catch him in blasphemy. The Bible tells us early on in the book of Matthew that the hearts of the religious leaders were set on finding a way to kill Jesus because he was a threat to the uh, social, political, and religious sphere because of what he taught and how he taught. We also see that Jesus, as they ask him this question, is going to answer them with the question. And he's going to trap the religious leaders with a question. Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven or was it of human origin? So Jesus answers their question with a question. And like the great philosopher that he is, he traps them. And the religious leaders, they pick up on this uh, game of chess that Jesus is playing with them in front of a multitude of people in the temple. Listen to what they said. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, that is, that John's baptism came from heaven, John the Baptist, the prophet who is now dead, Jesus' cousin, um, who said that he had came to prepare the way of the Lord and came with a clear message that Jesus was the Lamb of God here to take away the sins of the world. They say, if we say that John the Baptist is from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe in him? But if we say of human origins, we are afraid of the crowd because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. 
And isn't this interesting that everyone in Israel um, was, be, was seeing John the Baptist in the same light that they were seeing like an Elijah or Elisha or a prophet from the Old Testament, but the religious leaders did not see him that way. I love Jesus' response. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Y'all hear me say this all the time, but Jesus was a bad man. Jesus was a bad man. I mean, not only was he gentle and lowly, uh, so much so that women and children uh, wanted to be around him. Uh, Not only was he just controversial and countercultural in a way that was life-giving, but he was a philosopher. These are the smartest people in Israel, the people who are at the top of their class, who are constantly trying to catch him up in his words. And he makes them all look foolish by asking simple questions that puts them in a catch-22. I love Jesus. I love the Bible. It is so intriguing. And then we see that Jesus is going to further draw out their inconsistencies by telling a parable. Now, a parable is a small story that carries a big meaning. And this is one of three parables that Matthew is going to group together in Jesus' temple discourse. And we don't want to miss this. It's phenomenal. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then a man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered. But he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? So now he asked them another question to get to the point that he wants to get to since they kind of skirted around his last question. And listen to how they respond. They respond by saying the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. Man, from John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Jesus is taking on the spiritual heroes of his day, those with whom the average Jewish person would have looked up and said, these are holy men. These are our examples. But he's already shown us in in the Sermon on the Mount that those who followed the spiritual leaders of their day were being deceived because these men were blind themselves. When John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord, they could not see him as a divine prophet from God. And when God himself entered into the holy city of Jerusalem, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, entered into the temple that he uh, ascribed and described and told Solomon to build, um, which, of course, we know is the second temple as the first was destroyed. As he, God himself, is visiting the temple, those who are supposed to be most spiritual, alive, able to see They cannot see. And here's Jesus' point of the parable. They are the first son in the parable who said, I will work for the Lord. But they never went to the vineyard to work. 
But yet it was those in Israel as Jesus went from town to town and village to village and city to city teaching the people who actually said no, the, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, as they heard the message of John, as they uh, met and encountered Jesus, they actually entered into God's kingdom because they repented and turned. And I understand how big of a deal this is. In an honor and shame culture, Jesus is taking on the religious elites and he tells them, the prostitutes, the the women that I uh, ministered to who uh, gave their bodies to men, either uh, because they were stuck and felt they didn't have another way or because they just were in, in sexual sin and captive to lust, they are entering into God's kingdom. And the tax collectors, as he's preaching, he's probably looking at Matthew, who was a tax collector, Levi. He's like, these tax collectors who you see as uh, uh, kind of these, these Benedict Arnolds, these uh, traitors, uh, these crooks, these, these men who are greedy, They are entering into the kingdom of heaven. And why are they entering into the kingdom of heaven? Because they've humbled themselves like a child. They've confessed their sins. They're looking to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, by grace through faith. And they entered into his kingdom through a door that was low and cross-shaped. And yet these people who knew the Torah inside and out, who studied the things of God, couldn't see God when he walked among them. Three applications before we leave really quickly. First is this. Salvation doesn't happen by magical words, doctrinal alignment, or emotional experience, but through submitting one's life to Jesus as king. We see in this text that the first son says the right thing, but he doesn't go into the vineyard. He doesn't enter into the kingdom of God. And some of us are deceived because we think that in order to be a disciple of Jesus or a Christian, all we have to do is say magical words. All we have to do is pray the sinner's prayer. And we grew up believing that because we heard a preacher say, if you want to follow Jesus, raise your hand, close your eyes, and just pray this prayer after me. But praying a prayer does not save you. In fact, Jesus said on the last day, many will say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I know you not. In fact, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, many cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, God, save us. But we will see later on in the week, they will be the same people who cry, crucify him, because Jesus did not come and do what they wanted him to do, which was be a Messiah that would take on Rome, a political figure that will put them back into their social and political status of years before. Now, being a Christian does mean that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. But the Bible says that it goes deeper than confession. It's believing in your heart. 
is believing with everything on the inside of you that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for you, the death that you should have died, and that he rose on a third day with all power, that he ascended to heaven, that he's seated on the right-hand side of God, and that he's coming back again, and that because he died for you, that when you place your faith and trust in him, that your past, present, and future sins were nailed to the cross and buried in the grave, and you were declared right before God and forgiven of all of your sins. And that you being right with God is not based upon your works, but is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not a magical prayer, but neither is it doctrinal rightness. I see so many evangelical Christians who know doctrine inside and out, who know Latin, who know Hebrew, who know Greek, but who are mean and evil, and cantankerous, and sad, and dry. And they believe that because they know how to parse a Greek verb, or, 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 or speak Aramaic, or know Latin, or, or read deep philosophers, that they are right with God. And while Using our intellect for the glory of God should be our goal. It is not what we bank on for salvation. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have the tongues of angels but do not love, I am a noisy gong. Fruit of salvation is not in magical words. It's not in doctrinal uh, rightness. Or eloquence. Paul said, I, when I came before you, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I didn't come with eloquent speech or fancy words. He said, I came and I preached Christ and him crucified. Which was a stumbling block to Jews. And it was offensive to Greeks. But neither is it this emotionalism. Uh, some of us, we doubt our salvation because maybe we've grown and we're in a stage of our walk with Christ where we don't get the warm, um, fuzzy feelings when we read our Bible. Or because we, in the last year or two, just hadn't had this emotional, deep experience. And while I do believe through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can have intimacy with Christ and emotional experiences, that is not what we bank our salvation on. Our salvation is not banked on how we feel. It's not banked on, on our, our doctrinal rightness. It's not banked on any of these things. It's banked on the fact that we place all of our faith, faith, an attitude that says, for all I trust him. We place all of our weight on the saving work of Jesus Christ. We believe that he is true truth, that he is beauty, that he is goodness, and that he alone can save us. And we place our faith in him to redeem this broken world. And we don't place our faith in a political party or a person because we know that horses and chariots do not save. We place our faith in the name of the Lord. Second, 
Salvation is accompanied by words as well as deeds, by fruit. You all know this. You all know this. It, is, it, is, it comes with fruit. James says this in James chapter 2, these words. If a brother or sister is without clothes and, and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, Stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Now, we are justified by faith alone. Uh, The Bible teaches us this. Paul teaches us this. But as Christians, that faith should be, is accompanied by works. And, and it's accompanied by works because we have been given a new heart upon salvation. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the Holy Spirit has poured his love into our hearts. And so here in the parable, Jesus talks about the second son who's, uh, uh, who represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes. At first, they don't say the right thing, but eventually they have a change of mind. They repent. And this is shown by the fact that they go out into the vineyard and they work. They work. In the same way, if we say that we are followers of Jesus Christ and at the end of our lives, we look back on our lives and the only thing we did was come to church regularly or listen to our favorite podcast and live a life of convenience, we have to ask ourselves, were we regenerated? Did we experience new life. And the way in which we experience new life is not by forcing it in our own strength, but it's by crying out to God with spiritual poverty, saying, Lord, I am spiritually poor. Would you make me spiritually rich? Would you allow me to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Would you free me from the lust of the eye, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh? Would you give me a desire for your word, a desire for Christian community, a desire to talk to you and commune with you? Would you allow me to experience a peace that passeth all understanding? Would you make me more crazy about your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for me than anything else in this world? And this is a posture of heart that we come back to over and over and over again. Third, this text teaches us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, can change anybody. Jesus uses two categories of people that the religious leaders and those who were uh, uh, Jewish would have saw as, as helpless, as as, as outcast, tax collectors, traitors, greedy men who betrayed their own people and prostitutes. And yet Jesus is saying they, Pharisees, are entering the kingdom of God before you. And I just want to let you know if you're here today and you feel lost and you feel hurt and you feel shame and you feel guilt and it is crushing you that there is hope God's arms are not too short that he cannot save you 
And though your sins are red as scarlet, he can make you white as snow. And I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what I know. I'm telling you that I was lost. I'm telling you that I was depleted. I'm telling you that I was was so far gone. But God, being rich in mercy, came and he found me and he gave me hope. And though I'm still imperfect and though I still wrestle with the old man, he has filled me with a peace that surpasses all understanding and a joy that I cannot explain. I'm telling you, he, he changed the way that I think. He changed the way that I, I see. He changed what I desired and taste. He gave me a new walk and a a new talk. And sometimes I may backslide, but the Bible says that a righteous man, though he falls seven times, he gets up again. And I may not be where I want to, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. Can you imagine being in the temple and there's two groups, there's the religious leaders on one side and they're hurling questions and insults at Jesus. And then behind Jesus, there's these people. Women and men who were demon-possessed, but who are free from their chains. People who were enslaved to sexual sin, who are now walking in purity. And then there's Peter, who now has a a foot-shaped mouth. And and, and fishermen, and there's tax collectors, uh, uh, along with with people who who would have been zealots, and they're all peacefully looking at Jesus teach in the temple, and they're saying, he is right, tax collectors and prostitutes are welcome in his kingdom. Your kingdom shunned me. Your kingdom looked down on me. Your kingdom talked about me. Your kingdom said that, that no one should hang out with me, but this king came and he told me that I am worthy and that he loved me and that he showed me that he loved me by going up Golgotha's hill, taking three nails, two in the wrist, two or one in the foot, being hung high, stretched wide and dropped low. He took a crown of thorns for me and allowed his body to be put in Joseph's borrowed tomb. But the story doesn't end there. On the third day, he got up with all power in his hands. And it's that power that enables us to walk in the Spirit, to obey, to cry out to him, Lord, have mercy and know that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. And today he welcomes you into that kingdom. He says, you don't have enough money to buy a place in this kingdom. You don't have enough wisdom and intellect to think your way into this kingdom. All that is required of you is faith in me. Every Sunday we celebrate this big gospel by taking communion together. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and and he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. The same way he took a cup, he told the disciples, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. 
As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.